Hello, and welcome to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast, recorded live weekly at our campus in Scottsdale, Arizona, during our normal service. to be preaching with you this morning. Um, you know, I've been here long enough to know that you should hopefully all know, I love movies, I love television shows, all that kind of stuff. Um, but hopefully you also know that I, love, I just love learning just about how things are made, how, how TV shows are made. Um, I love learning about all the symbolism and things like that, uh, all the like, camera angles and, and whatnot when it goes into storytelling. Uh, because obviously, like, if you're watching a movie or a TV show, like, there's a narrative that's happening, people are talking, there's action, which is driving the story along. Um, but there's all these like, subtle things that happen as well uh, with like, lighting and costumes and colors that kind of help tell the story uh, very subtly. Um, and I'm one of those people that I watch it, and then I'll, when I'll read like, about it or watch a documentary, I'm like, oh, there's all this stuff that I didn't even, like, didn't even know. And that just makes me appreciate the story all the more. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is in my favorite film, uh, Taxi Driver. Uh, Taxi Driver take, uh, it was filmed in the 70s. It was d- done by Martin Scorsese, a very famous director. And there's this scene where Robert uh, De Niro's character, Travis, um, is romantically pursuing uh, Sybil Shepard's character, her name's Betsy. Um, he ends up just botching things really badly with her, and she like wants nothing to do with him. And so, of course, he's like, he's trying to win her back. Um, and there's this scene, again, it's the 70s, so he's on a payphone, right? And so he's talking to her, and, and, and the camera is just like straight on him talking on this payphone. And you, can, you only hear his side of the conversation. There's, there's nothing else. It's just him talking on, on, on that. So you can, you can kind of guess what she's saying by how he responds. And it's just this really sad scene. It's this really pathetic scene because, like, he's clearly not getting it. She's over him, and he just keeps, like, talking, 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 like, trying to win her back. And the camera is focused on him, and then something really interesting happens. The camera just, like, pans away. He's still talking, and then the camera focuses on this empty hallway. And you're thinking like, oh, she's gonna rush out of her apartment or something weird's gonna happen. Like, no, the camera just pans away, he keeps talking, and eventually the scene ends. And I remember watching that and being like, what was that about? Like, why was, why was that going on? And in, in researching the film, I came to find out that the, the camera, it was supposed to almost represent that the camera was like embarrassed for him. Like, the camera felt pathetic. Even the camera was like, I can't even watch this. I need to, like, turn my eyes away because it's too embarrassing to, like, to capture. And I remember, like, oh, that is genius. That is brilliant. And so it just made me love that scene all the more. So, so I, I'm bringing this up because when we look at the life of Jesus, when we study what he was about, when we read the scriptures, things like that, um, a lot of times, like, there's, there's layers to the story that we may miss at first glance. We may appreciate the story, we, we may love what's going on, we, it may, may be something familiar to us, but like sometimes if we dig a little bit deeper, we'll see all these layers that maybe we didn't realize were there at first, and it can, it can make us appreciate the story all the, all the more. And so that's what's happening uh, with, I think, our, with our current story. At first glance, it's a very powerful story, it's a very good story, it's a pr- pretty famous one, um, but I think there's a lot of layers to it that we may miss, and so we're gonna dive in and kind of like 
pull back some of those layers today. Um, and so I referenced Taxi Driver. That's probably my favorite movie. And this story this morning is probably my favorite from the Gospels as well. So like, this is like John's favorites this morning. So, um, so I'm really excited to talk about this uh, as we continue our, our Lenten series as to what Jesus was about. Jesus called diverse disciples. Jesus healed people spiritually and physically. And Jesus arrives uh, to restore uh, women and others. And so we begin in prayer. So please pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the truth of your word when it was lived out uh, with Jesus. We're thankful for uh, the truth of your word throughout the ages, and we're thankful for the truth of your word uh, for us today. I pray that I would indeed be able to preach and proclaim that truth. If I say anything that's not of you, let that be forgotten. Uh, We pray that you'd be brought glory and honor, and we'd learn to better be your disciples as a result. Amen. All right, so in in our current text, we read about the healing of two different women. Uh, we have the woman who, the older woman who's healed from her constant bleeding, um, and then the young girl that's brought back from the dead. Um, and both miracles in and of themselves are fairly remarkable, and it's one of the reasons why Jesus was so popular. He was a miracle worker, and last week we uh, talked about the miracle of the paralyzed man. So that was something we associate with Jesus now. That was something the original audience, uh, the original crowds would associate with him. That's why he drew a crowd. Um, and so as our story begins, we're introduced to someone named Jairus. Uh, Luke tells us that Jairus was uh, the ruler of the synagogue, and the reason that he wants to see Jesus is that his only daughter, a girl of about 12, uh, was dying. And so Jairus wants to, Jesus to come to his house so that his daughter would be healed. And we have to give Jairus some credit here because he's the ruler of the local synagogue, and he's not at odds with Jesus unlike our story last week, and pretty much unlike the rest of the stories that we encounter with the religious leaders and the Pharisees and whatnot. They're pretty much always at odds with Jesus. Here's like a shining example of someone who is not. So we have to give Jairus a bit of credit here. Um, He's not wanting to fight Jesus. He's not wanting to trap Jesus. Um, No, he's seeking him out because he knows this is a miracle worker, and maybe he can do something to heal his daughter. And I don't think it's too far of a stretch to also say like, hey, Jairus, like, we know his name. Um, that's pretty interesting. And I don't think it's too uh, far of a stretch to say we know his name because he likely served as an eyewitness to these events. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were writing these things down. They were t- like exp- uh, explaining their own stories, interviewing people. And it's like Jairus, like he probably interviewed Jairus as, as, as part of that. And so whenever you see a named individual in the Gospels, um, that should cause you to pause, maybe slow down a little bit and say like, oh, like, It's not just this random person, like, there's a name there, like, it's almost like, you know, if you don't believe me, Jairus, he'll tell you. I'm writing it down, but if you don't believe me, Jairus is still around. Go talk to him. He'll he'll tell you this stuff actually happened. And so, so Jairus, he wants Jesus to come to his house, heal his daughter, so they set out together. However, along the way, um, they encounter the woman who has the issue of bleeding, um, and there's, there's a bit of an interaction, a bit of a pause to the story. Um, we're not going ca- to cover that now. We're going we're to pause on that. We're going to come back to it later, um, so don't forget. So we haven't skipped over that. Um, so unfortunately, though, for Jairus, while this interaction is taking place, um, uh, someone else from his house comes and says, like, hey, your, your daughter has, has died. You know, don't bother the teacher anymore. Let's go back. Um, obviously, this is devastating news, but upon hearing this, Jesus uh, tells Jairus, hey, don't fear. Uh, only believe, and she will be saved. Uh, Jesus, he was a big Journey fan. He says, don't stop believing, Jairus. Don't stop believing. 
All right, so that was a silly joke. Come on. All right. Uh, so, so they get to the house. Uh, Jesus goes in with him and his three disciples, his closest disciples, Peter, John, and James. And as Jesus is going into the house, he speaks to those that are in mourning who are crying out, and he says, uh, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but she is sleeping. And they hear this, and they're like, they, they laugh at him. They mock him because they've seen this girl. They know that she's passed away. And for Jesus to show up and say, like, hey, she's only sleeping, like, their natural response would be to, to laugh at him, like, what are you talking about? Um, and, and these statements from Jesus, they, they do bring some questions to the table, you know, was she really sleeping, hadn't died yet? Was he maybe speaking metaphorically here, like, for death? Is there some sort of other meaning here? You know, do we take this literally? Do we take this symbolically? Like, how do we understand this statement? Um, and to be honest, I don't really know. Um, and it doesn't necessarily really matter that much for our story, uh, because regardless of how we understand it, whether it's literally or symbolically, uh, the fact remains that Jairus' daughter was indeed very sick. Uh, that's why he sought uh, Jesus out in the first place. Um, that's why they were mourners there, like she was on the, uh, the cusp of dying. And so even if she really was just sleeping, she was about ready to die. And, you know, that was not up for debate. This was a very serious and grave kind of a thing. And so, uh, so they, they laugh at Jesus, but Jesus has the last laugh because he ends up taking her by the hand and he says to her, child, get up. He takes her by the hand, child, get up. And her spirit returns and she stands up. And obviously that's miraculous. That's great. Like this woman who was uh, almost dead or dead, she comes back to life. Um, that's pretty amazing. That's a miracle. And clearly, there's a lot we can say about this miracle. Um, but I think one thing that's very important for us to understand is, is verse uh, 54. Um, that's a very important like, layer to the story, a small detail that's, that's, that can be overlooked. Because uh, there, Luke records that uh, he took the girl by the hand and tells her to get up. He didn't just say, like, hey, you're healed. He goes over to her and he touches her. Um, and that's important to the story uh, because uh, Jesus is now placing himself at ritual defilement. He's, he's placing himself in danger uh, by touching this girl's hand. My clicker is not working. We advance the slide, please. Um, so Numbers 19.11 comes into play here. I'm sure you guys all have Numbers 19.11 memorized. Uh, but in the law, it states that those who touch the dead body of any human being shall be unclean for seven days. And so in that day and age, for the Jewish people, if you were to touch a dead body, you basically had to self-isolate for a week. You, you couldn't be around anybody. You were cut off from everyone during this time. You had to perform certain rituals. They had to let some time pass. And then eventually, you can join the community again. And so that was like the, the strict interpretation of the law. But then they started to add to that. And so it got to the point uh, where people were so afraid of this idea. They just didn't want to like, deal with like, being cut off. They didn't want to just deal with all the messiness of that. So that even if someone was really close to dying, even if someone was like, half dead or really sick or like, I'm not, you know, they're, they're almost ready to die, you just wouldn't want to be around them. You wouldn't want to touch them. You wouldn't want to be close to them. And so they took kind of an already complicated law, and they just added more layers to it. They added more things to it just to kind of keep themselves uh, from others. And so over time, the stakes were raised that if someone was almost dead, like Jairus' daughter, like you wouldn't even want to touch them. 
And we see this very clearly in the story of the Good Samaritan. We're going to reference the Good Samaritan a few times today. Um, if you remember that parable, a man is beat up and he's left for dead on the side of the road. I um, mean, he's not actually dead. He's just in really bad shape. Um, and if left untreated, he will certainly die. And the first two people that encounter him in that parable, there's a priest and then a Levite. Not only do they see that man and ignore his plight, but they cross over to the other side of the road. They don't even want to be close to him because they're not sure if he's dead. Because if they touch him, now they're going to be isolated. Now they're going to have to be off on their own for a while. And so uh, there's much to say about this miracle with Jairus' daughter, but I think it's important for us to highlight Jesus going the extra mile uh, by placing himself in danger, um, by by being considered unclean through the act of physical touch. And, and And I'm bringing all this up because... This impacts our other miracle. This impacts the other story, which we're going to circle back to, uh, the other miracle that Jesus done in our, it does in our text this morning. And so, obviously, raising a girl back from the dead or close to, close to death, like, that is very amazing. And we might look at these two miracles and say, like, well, that's obviously the better miracle. That's, like, the greater miracle. Um, but this second miracle, uh, just the, the, the healing of the woman, like, that has so much more depth to it than we may first see. So again, we're going to slow down, we're going to dig a little bit deeper, and we're going to discover some parallels uh, between the two miracles. There's going to be some comparisons and some contrasts as well. Um, so these stories are very connected by many of the details. It's very profound. Um, so again, the idea of ritual purity is at the center of this other healing story. Because uh, if we can understand that, then we just understand just how deep and rich and beautiful this other miracle really is. Um, so again, we're told that there's this woman who has been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but nobody could heal her. Um, this story also appear, appears in Matthew and Mark. Um, in Mark's version of the story, he makes explicit what we could probably imply is that this problem has been a financial burden to her. So problem number one, uh, there's a medical issue that's just been a huge drain on her bank account. So medical issues and causing financial distress, that's a problem for us today, certainly a problem in the first century. Uh, but deeper than that is the uh, medical issue in and of itself, uh, that she's been bl- uh, subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, there, uh, the NRSV reads, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. Um, she, she has a menstrual bleeding uh, problem. Her, her body is not functioning the way it's supposed to function. Uh, this, and this has been going on for over a decade. And that's where the idea of ritual purity comes into play again. Uh, because not only did touching a dead body have ramifications for just your life and how you're involved in the community, um, so did the concept of dealing with bodily fluids. Ooh, bodily, let's talk about that in our sermon today. Uh, Leviticus 15 is all about this idea. If, if you don't believe me, go back and read Leviticus 15 after the service. That's my challenge for you. Um, but that chapter outlines what you do with various body fluids for men and for women. And that's one of those chapters, again, that kind of weirds us out as modern-day people. Like, that's in our Bibles. What do we do with this kind of thing? Like, we don't usually talk about that, preach from it, things like that. Um, But that chapter is just, again, central. It's so important uh, to our understanding of this woman's plight. Um, The basic gist of Leviticus 15 is that when when a woman was on her period, she was unclean for seven days. Uh, So every month, women were essentially off on their own for about a week. And the law, uh, the, the, the Torah, went, even, uh, went so far as to say that anything that she touched would also be unclean as well. So if she's sitting here by the podium, touching the podium, and then I come up and touch the podium, 
now I'm unclean. So it, it got a little bit, a little bit com complicated. And so there were all these rules and there were all these regulations about your life. And again, it just got a little, little bogged down with trying to make sense of it all. And it, get, it gets a little tricky here. Um, but especially when we get to Leviticus 15.25, which I have up on the screen. Um, if you had uh, an ongoing hemorrhaging issue, like this woman, you remained in a constant state of being considered unclean. You remained in a constant state of being cut off. So it's important for us to highlight that, as I hope we start to get a sense of just how much of a predicament that this woman is in. 12 years. She's essentially become an outcast in her society. She's essentially become an outcast in, in the society in, in her day and age. For the past 12 years, she has not been allowed to touch anyone. For the past 12 years, she's not really allowed to, been to touch anything. She's not really allowed to be near people. And so there's just generally an avoidance of her in, in general. So there's almost been this like invisible force field around her that has slowly separated her from the rest of society for 12 years. Like in the Good Samaritan story, when people would see her, not only would they kind of just maybe shy away and not want to interact with her, they would probably start to go on the other side of the road when they would see her approaching. A simple avoidance for 12 years, that would be bad enough. But she is well beyond that. She's become an outcast. She's become an exile among her own people. She's become a pariah among her people as well. Someone you just stay away from at all costs. She is someone you would see coming and you would turn around and walk away and go as fast as you can. She's coming this way. I'm going to go this way. She's someone that you would warn your children to stay away from. Twelve years ago was the year 2010. Just for a moment, let's think about this. Think about just how many memories, how many things how, like, that you've experienced, how many people you've interacted with, how many meals you've shared, how many vacations you've gone on, how many just things you've done socially for the past 12 years. Think about all the conversations you've had. Think about all the memories you've made with your friends and your family. Again, think about trips and vacations. Think about just all the amount of interactions you've had. 12 years of that. It's, you can't even like calculate. Just, just trying to think about that is like hard for your brain to process. Like Every meal I've had, every conversation I've had, every trip I've made, every interaction I've had for 12 years. And this woman has had none of that. Zero for 12 years. Nothing. What has this woman experienced for a decade now, for over a decade? What has she known? She has known doctor's bills. She has known the embarrassment of her situation. We can assume physical discomfort. We can assume pain. She's known people doing everything in their power to avoid her. She's used to being viewed like the plague among her own people. Again, someone that you would warn your children, like, don't go near this woman. That's who she is among her community. Hopefully we can start to understand just a little bit about this woman's situation. Hopefully we can start to just feel a little bit like just how horrible it all is. I'm kind of stressing this because I want us to get in that mindset. I want us to just kind of feel that for a moment. Can we just grasp just 
how alone she must be feeling. I want us to sit with that, just how alone she is. You know, preaching this side of the pandemic, we've all gotten a small taste of this magnitude of this woman's situation. You know, for like about two or so years now, we've all experienced just a weird world, a lot of negative stuff, you know, like whatever we want to say about that, whatever negative stuff that's been going on in our lives because of that, multiply it by like a thousand, and that's this woman's situation. This woman is beyond broken. She's had so much going on in her life that would have caused her to feel just completely defeated, completely dejected, completely crushed, alone, 12 years. 12 years? How old is Jairus' daughter? Anyone remember? 12 years. Jairus' daughter is 12 as well. There's another layer to the story. There's a relationship and there's an interplay between this woman and Jairus' daughter. And that interplay is this, that uh, this woman has basically died around the time that Jairus' daughter is brought to life, around the time that Jairus' daughter is born. Think, think about it. Like This woman, about 12 years ago, she died. This condition brought financial, social, emotional, spiritual death. All, all the different types of death, aside of physical death, has been brought upon this woman. She's been dead for 12 years. She's been like a living corpse for 12 years. For 12 years, she's been cut off from the rest of the world. And Jairus' daughter is brought into the world and given life around that same time that that woman has died. And so as that woman has become more and more of an outcast, more and more of a nobody. Jairus' daughter has grown and been loved by her family and just experienced all the things that uh, children experienced. And so, again, as this woman has been slowly dying, Jairus' daughter has been slowly just been more in the land of the living. I hope we can get that. And we can assume that Jairus is probably financially well off. He's a leader in the synagogue. Like, he's a respected man in the community. Jairus' daughter, like, once for nothing. She has, like, a, a beautiful life. And this woman's slowly been dying and being more cut off. Again, their situations could not be more opposite. Their situations could not be more different. And their lives intersect for this moment in the person of Jesus, and they are both healed by him. Uh, we have a further irony, we have a further layer uh, by the fact that we're dealing with 12 years here. That's around the time that a, woman, a girl would start to go through puberty. And so Jairus' daughter is around the age when she will start to experience her own monthly cycle and her own monthly just very miniature version of this woman's situation. And so they're connected by one of the central things that makes them women. And so this older woman, she, like Jairus, is seeking out Jesus. She's heard great things about him. She's heard how he's healed people like Jairus. However, there's another difference. There's another layer here, and that she cannot uh, approach Jesus directly. Jairus' daughter comes out and says, like, come to my house. This woman cannot do that. There's no way she would ever think that she could do that, approach him directly. As in her pariah status, she cannot come and plead with him. She can't invite him into her home. She can't even like publicly address him or publicly talk to him. 
She's hoping that nobody will see her. You know, there's tons of people around. The crowd is pressing in on them, and she's hoping just to kind of get lost in the crowd, lost in the shuffle. This poor woman has to be clandestine. She has to sneak up behind Jesus and just, like, touch the edge of her cloak. And, and I know we're not told this, but it's almost like we can almost, like, hear her prayer, like, God, make me whole. God, fix me. God, I just, something, help. You can almost like hear her prayer and her loneliness. And she touches the edge of his his cloak and she's healed. And again, that is amazing. In and of itself, that is a miracle. We're not told this, but we can probably presume she wants to just flee, go back to her house, and just figure out the situation. Like, just like, what is going on here? Jesus has healed her, but there's yet a further miracle that needs to take place. Because Jesus, he stops what he's doing, he turns around, and he says, who touched me? And at first glance, that sounds a bit absurd. Who touched you? Like, what kind of a question is that? Like, we're in the middle of a crowd. There's hundreds of people around us. We're all, like, pressed up on each other. Like, this is kind of ridiculous. Peter has to step in, and he says to Jesus, uh, look around you. Like, there's people everywhere. Like, who isn't touching you right now? And Jesus brushes his misunderstanding aside as he's essentially saying, there is someone who is here who desperately needs to see me, and I need them to come forward. There is someone here who desperately needs to, to come forward. Please, I'm right here. Just come forward. And this woman knows she can't get away. She knows that she has to speak up. And she comes forward trembling, and like Jairus, she falls at his feet and tells him her story. And this woman has no idea what Jesus is going to say. She's probably bracing for impact. She's used to people yelling at her. She's used to people screaming at her, saying, like, go away, shoo, get out of here. She's expecting him to scream. She's expecting him to be frustrated and be like, now I have to, like, go away for a week. Thanks a lot, lady. That is what she's expecting. She's expecting to get yelled at. And something amazing happens. Daughter, he says to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And so Jesus, yes, has healed her, but there's this further, this deeper, this like other miracle that needs to take place, that this woman needs to be restored back to her community. This woman needs to be restored back to her community. Remember, she has lost everything in life spent countless dollars, lost friends, lost just the feeling of what it me- feel like means to be human, just completely alone, has no idea what it's like to feel like a human being. She has no one to come and plead on her behalf like Jairus. No one's coming on her behalf. She's completely alone and dead to the world. And so, yes, she needs to be uh, healed from her bleeding, but she also needs to be restored. She needs to be restored back to the community. And and that's the deeper miracle here, being brought back into the fullness of the community. And in the presence of everyone there, Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus is announcing in front of everyone, this massive crowd, you don't need to fear her anymore. You do not need to run away from her anymore. You do not need to yell at her. You do not need to scream at her. 
she is healed, and he is restoring her back to a life, including a life in the community. Jesus goes even further, though, another layer, and he gives this woman a name. All throughout the story, we're talking about Jairus, like an eyewitness to this account. We know him. We know about Jairus' daughter. This woman, though, is just like a, a nobody. We know nothing about her. And man, Jesus gives her a name. In verse 34, when he says her faith has healed her, he calls her daughter. There's this, there's this full and complete healing. She's healed of her physical sickness. He publicly says, you are healed. And he, says, he shows God's complete love for her by letting her know she is not alone, that God loves her, and she is God's daughter. For years, 12 years on the outside, lost everything, has had no one to look out for her. Jairus' daughter had her father, had her dad to look out and care for her, but this woman has no one. Jairus' daughter was dying, and in the story, we see that God's daughter was dying too. And Jesus heals her fully and completely, and he just restores her both bodily and socially. So for the 12-year-old girl, had her father Jairus looking out for her, and this older woman has God, her father, looking out for her as well. She's part of the community. She was someone who is loved and cherished by God. She is his daughter. Her healing is just whole. Her healing is complete on so many layers. And so I hope we can understand that. I hope you understand why this, this miracle is like, just blows my mind when we slow down and look at it, just how like rich and deep and full and beautiful this miracle is and all the layers present. Because it's not just a simple healing miracle. It's like a restoration miracle. It's, just, it's so rich and so deep. And so we're, we're spending our time in Lent. We're, we're looking at what Jesus was about, what he was doing, what, what, he, what, was he, what was he about, what are we supposed to be about? And Jesus, he arrives on the scene and he calls imperfect disciples uh, Jesus physically heals. He forgives sin. He calls us to be agents of healing. Uh, Jesus also goes out of his way to restore women and other outsiders and people who are not at the center of society. Jesus goes out of his way to restore women and other outsiders and people who are not at the centers of society. Uh, that's what we're to do as well. Uh, in the first century, in this day and age, to be a woman, like you were a second-class citizen. And if you read the Gospels, you'll just be like, just slow down and read the Gospels. There's story after story after story and encounter after encounter after encounter of Jesus dealing with women. That's unheard of in that day and age. He was empowering them. He was interacting with them. He was healing them. And just, this is one of many stories we could have picked out where Jesus went out of his way to welcome in someone who was always unwelcomed. In both encounters today, in both of the miracles today, Jesus went out of his way to restore women and he, he placed himself in a category that would have been undesirable in that day and age. Jesus like, took, took a danger and said, like, I am willing to be unclean in order to heal you. Uh, Jesus calls us to see who is alone and restore them back to community. That is our calling as the church. That's, I think, the point of this story. 
Every culture and every time has its own share of categories. The general population would say, hey, stay away from them. So you tell your children, you stay away from them. And the modern church has her own categories of people, and we say, stay away from them. They're not welcome here. But those who consider themselves followers of Jesus, we mimic him, we follow him by breaking down all of these categories, all of these distinctions, because there is no outsider, there is no stranger, there is no person or category that we say stay away from. We as humans are really good about people, putting people into boxes and categories that divide, and Christ comes along, he smashes all of these things down, and he says, you are all my sons, you are all my daughters, you are all my children whether they are pillars in the community or someone that the community flees away from. Everyone has value and meaning and importance, and they are welcomed to the table. And so hopefully we can see that uh, that everyone that we come in contact with is a human being, a child of God, who is made in the image of God and has value and meaning and is important, and they are welcomed in. And so do we grasp that, and more importantly, do we live that out? Do we carry that out with how we view and treat others in, in, in our personal lives, as the global church, as our denomination, as our local body here? It's like we carry that out in different levels. Whatever those things are that keep people from feeling whole, whatever those things are that keep people from feeling welcomed, whatever those things are that keep people from feeling part of society, part of the church, as Christians, let's do all in our power to just lay those barriers to waste and put them at the foot of the cross. If there are those who are alive today who are feeling pariah in society and the church, how do we embody bold love? How do we embody a love that puts ourselves in danger? A love that's merciful and says, you are valued and you are welcome despite what others say. Jesus, he put himself in danger of ritual defilement are we do, willing to do the same? Are we willing to face communal scorn by having a wide view of grace? Whatever person you're thinking of, whatever category, whatever barrier, whatever thing it is that's making you uncomfortable, making you squirm, whoever you're wanting to not welcome in, that's the person that Jesus is calling you to welcome in. Whatever category, whatever person that is uncomfortable in your brain right now, that's the person that Christ is saying, lay down your weapons, embrace them in. So to my friends in the faith, to those on a faith journey, to those who are gathered here this morning online, in person, to those who are listening later, Jesus arrives at the scene to welcome in women and others who are at the fringes of society, putting himself at risk in the process. And he's calling us to go and do likewise. Thank you for listening to Papago Butte's Church of the Brethren podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in finding out more about our church, feel free to reach out to us at any time. Our contact information is provided at www.pbcob.org.